The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women, where we look back on how successful women use their voices and platforms to give back. Actress Marlo Thomas, media executive Laureen Arbus, and financial literacy expert Carrie Schwab explain how giving back makes them feel the most successful. I'm Marlo Thomas, and I'm an actress and an author, and I work uh, for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So Marlo, you said your mom gave you and your siblings her whole life and that you could have done it on half. What do you mean by that? Well, she gave up a singing career. She had her own radio show called uh, Rosemarie, the Sweet Singer of Sweet Songs. And then she married my dad and, uh, and followed him on his career. They left Detroit. He went to Chicago and then Los Angeles. And she gave up her singing career, and I think she always kind of regretted that. Even though she was a great mom and a great wife, we really could have done it on half. You wrote a book about women who have reinvented themselves. Uh What's your advice for women who want to reinvent themselves? Well, I think just not to be afraid. You know, you only live once. This is it. So uh, I think, was it Cher or somebody said, this is not a dress rehearsal, this is it? It, that that's it. I mean, so the idea that that book was called "It Ain't Over, Let's Over," which I stole from uh, Yogi Berra. Uh, it, it's true. It's it ain't over, let's over. So whether you're 50 or 60 or 80 or however old you are, uh, you can start again. You know, a lot of people, and I had written that book really for women, but men or women, you get to a place where you think, oh, you know, I've lost my job, or my spouse has left me, or my spouse has died, or my children have grown and I'm left alone. Whatever it is, I've lost my home. There's so many things that can befall us, you know, that are that can set us back. And I think the thing to be able to say is, okay, I can start again. I can begin a new life. I can find a new job. I can become an intern to learn how to do a new job. You know, that you, or I can go back to school and, and learn a new trade or a new craft. The whole idea is that you can start again rather than get frightened by the fact that you've lost something. So being able to realize that it ain't over till it's over to me is very encouraging for all of us, you know, men and women. Would you tell us the story of how St. Jude started? Ooh, that's a long story, but let's see if I can say it in a succinct way. Uh, my dad uh, was very poor, very broke. I was about to be born, um, and my mom and I were in the hospital, and my dad needed $50 to get us out of the hospital, and he had $12. So we went to Mass that Sunday, and the sermon was on St. Jude, patron of the hopeless cases. So my father prayed to St. Jude and said, who's more hopeless than I am? I've got a a baby and a wife, and I don't have $50 to get them out of the hospital. So he took $10 of his 12 and put them in the collection basket and said to St. Jude, I'm putting $10, I'm putting $7 of my $10 in the basket, and I need 10 times this. And um, that was a Sunday and Monday. Uh, the next day, he got a call to be a singing toothbrush on a radio show for $75. And that was his sign. And then he, he prayed that someday he would build a shrine to St. Jude. 
Uh, he wasn't sure what he was going to do with it, but he knew he wanted to be something about people that were hopeless. And so he, he built St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for the most helpless of all, children with hopeless diseases. What have you learned about philanthropy over the years? I think the biggest thing I've learned is that there's no donation that's too small. You know, people come up to me and say, well, all I've got is a dollar, or all I have is $10. What, what difference will that make? It makes all the difference. You know, my dad used to say, I'd rather a million people give me one dollar than one, one man or woman give me a million dollars, because that means more people are engaged. And, and being engaged is like a, a big wave, you know? If I get you engaged and then you get your friend engaged and the people listening to us get other people engaged, that's, that's more meaningful in the end to the culture, to society. So I think that that's a very important thing to know about philanthropy is that not, no contribution is too small or no deed you do is too small. Otherwise, you opt out of thinking, well, I don't have enough. I don't have enough money to help. And then so then you're not a part of the wave of giving. So that, I think, is probably the biggest thing I've learned about philanthropy. What do you think motivates people to give? I think people want to do something good. Do you know, we just don't know how. You know, you if you ask anybody, they will tell you, I'd like to do something good. I'd like to give something for other people, but we don't know how. And one of the things I like about being the outreach director for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, I can help show people how they can do something for the good. I mean, St. Jude isn't the only place you can do good. I just hope it's one of the places that you do good. But I think people want to. They just don't know how. You're part of a team that I heard raises over $700 million a year for the hospital. Is that right? uh-huh. How do you cope with such an overwhelming number? I mean, that's a huge number. Well, we don't have a choice. You know, children come to St. Jude, and we nobody pays. No parent has to pay at St. Jude. That was my father's promise. Because my father grew up in a very poor neighborhood. He never went to a doctor. His mom had 10 babies with no doctor. And so he really wanted to build a place where every child would get the same first-class care, so that way nobody gets a bill. And so that's our demand and our command, we must raise this money. It costs $2.6 million a day at St. Jude for all the research and the treatment and the children, for their travel, for their food, for their housing, and all, no, longer, no matter how long it takes to make a child well. So it's very important to us that we just do it, and so we do it. I'm Marlo Thomas, and my money secret is to tip people well, to show gratitude for the people who serve you. So I think noticing is one of the biggest tips I have for living well in our culture. And one of the ways of noticing is to also tip people well. I'm Lorreen Arbus, and I'm a producer, writer, author, and activist on many fronts. So Lorreen, your sister had cerebral palsy. How did that affect your childhood? In many, many ways. Um, It made me, first of all, more appreciative for the things that I did have in life, which I might not have been as conscious of if it hadn't been for the fact that there were so many things almost, she could almost do nothing. Um, And it had a terrible, took a terrible toll on my mother, who was um, psychologically damaged by having a child with disability, but she became an activist in spite of that. And 
I was ostracized along with my family because my sister was not someone people wanted to have in their midst. What did you learn from your sister? How she was the sweetest person imaginable. She couldn't talk. We don't think she could see, maybe just shadows. Um, She had a beautiful laugh, and she had a lovely sense of humor. She enjoyed things, Um, but she couldn't walk and she had numerous other disabilities. And what I learned from her was how much of an impression she made with so little to make it with. Um, She was something, someone that people came over to. I mean, it was very fortunate she was so beautiful because people with disability are all too often people that others shun and avoid. Um, But people came over to her and she was just so, such a lovely soul. You said women shouldn't say they're lucky for their success. How oh come? Oh my goodness, I love your asking that. I am so sick and tired and truly angry about how many women attribute their success to, oh, I was lucky. No, 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 no. We have all worked so hard along with the men, but we women have more often than not, as, as I've said several times, work twice as hard to get what we get. Don't ascribe it to luck as if it was just a throwaway. No, it was something we worked and did and believed in doing and took on the odds against us. Take credit. I think some people say that though because they want to sound humble. I don't think so. I think it's more that thing of wanting to please and to be accepted. And I don't think humility has much to do with it. I wish that were a factor, but I don't think so. Tell us the first thing you do when you enter a conference room. I sniff the air. I follow in the path of, I love, love, love animals. And if you observe animals, virtually all of them do this. They know who might be an enemy before they encounter their enemy or another creature, and they can have more finely honed instincts about what they're in for. And as I myself, having been for many years a professional dancer, before going on stage, I would do what I call sniffing the air. And is this a friendly audience or is this an unfriendly audience? And you can tell there's a world of difference. And you can turn the audience around if you know, if you understand, sometimes not always. Um, You just have to really hone in on, zero in on what you're walking into and not just barge your way through. And um, it's just, it's something I think people don't much think about. I learned that from my dance partner and from animals. You help a lot of people, but you've said you have complexes about people asking for things. What do you mean? Well, as a child, because I had an entree in terms of my father to the entertainment industry, people would say, Lorene, can you get us this and that band? And no, 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 no. Ask me something that might have meaning for me and not because you're using me. Um, I was just saying to a friend of mine today at lunch, I never get invited to anything without there being a price tag, without there being an agenda. When someone as, 
I need to mention her name, Lori Sokol, who's the executive director of Women's E-News, called me up one day and she said, Loreen, we want to offer an award, have an award that Women's E-News gives out and name it the Loreen Arbus Focus on Disability Award. And I said, how much? And she said, no, Loreen, we just want to give an award in your name for what you have to recognize what you have done. Do you know this was a moment in history? And I am and was so grateful that I wasn't being parlayed into something else, money or an introduction or whatever. It was just pure. It was, Lorene, we want to acknowledge you and thank you. I'm not asking to be acknowledged all the time, but it was a breath of fresh air. I don't know that that's ever happened. How do you figure out your true friends when you're in a position like you are? It's really hard. It gets increasingly easy. Here's what I do. I say to myself, if I was if I was captive in a little room in the um, basement or in the attic, would the people I'm standing with now come to my rescue? Would they or would they betray me? And it's kind of a Holocaust mentality, even though my parents were not survivors of the Holocaust. But I always, always look at people and I say to myself, would they or wouldn't they turn me in? And that takes me right to the core of who they are in a weird kind of way, even though one thing doesn't have anything to do theoretically with the other, it does. It gives you a sense of the quality and the character of the person. Donate the use of your grand apartment in New York to charity. What motivates you to do that? Well, I'm a collector of art and a compulsive collector of art. My parents were artists. I'm an artist. And to share my art with people has been just so joyful because everything was in storage and I took it out of storage. But the bigger reason is that why should nonprofits have to go to all that trouble when they're doing such important things? Why should they have to look for a venue and spend money to cultivate people when I can offer them the opportunity to expand their horizons and their mission statements, have them get known, better known? It gives me such joy to know that people will now know about different nonprofits. I read you don't own your apartments. I don't. I rent in L.A., I rent in New York, I rent, rent in Buenos Aires. How come? I just, I have a bag lady complex, which is very real, that what's here now is going to be gone tomorrow. And I know a lot of women, which is why it's called bag lady, who have this too. It's just kind of an insecurity that what you have is really real. I mean, there's some men who had it. It was called something different, I'm sure. I know Aaron Spelling for all he made and the size of his house, which was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, at a point in time. He felt it was all going to go away. You said we are meaningless if we don't serve others. What do you mean? Oh, well, it's a lesson I learned from both my parents who felt so importantly about helping others. And everything and everyone, including animals, that get my support, it's because they're marginalized. Um, and how wonderful is it to be able to know that you've helped someone, and maybe more than someone, in this world? 
someone who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity you can give them to use that power you have. I'm Lorene Arbus, and my money secret is I never assume. I look at every situation that has to do with money as a learning experience, and I temper it with always asking questions. Coming up, more on how the most powerful women are creating paths for other people's success. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust AI. Welcome back to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women. We're listening back on some of the most inspiring stories of philanthropy. I'm Carrie Schwab Pomerantz, and I am president of the Charles Schwab Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of Charles Schwab. I am a long-term executive at Charles Schwab and a personal finance and financial literacy for all Americans. So you mentioned your father didn't become extremely financially successful until you were in your 20s. How did wealth change your life? You know, I say not until my mid-20s, but I have to remember or go back in time, there was definitely some ups and downs and rockiness. So it was not like, you know, my dad was just instantly super wealthy. But I will have to tell you that he is always... Um, my dad has very strong values, a very strong work ethic, um, and that he's imparted on me. You know, I've I've been working since I was 13, you know, starting with the paper route and babysitting and so forth. And um, I think seeing what he went through, what my parents went through, has, has instilled in me this whole notion of working and saving and having your own money. So I would say, you know, I guess a lot of people think I would be somebody different given who my father is, but I don't, I don't look at it that way. I look at, you know, he, he's his own success and I am my own person. And um, it's really important for me to, I don't know, live, you know, be, be um, gracious, be, um, have humility, which is something my dad really talks about. He also talks about giving back. So I would say in a sense, I, I, I don't feel wealthy. I don't, I, maybe my husband thinks I act wealthy. <laughs> you know how that is. Husbands always think you spend too much. But um, for, for me, it's, it's, it's I, love, I love philanthropy and, and loving helping others. And I guess that's really where it opened up my life. And you said turning 50 was a huge inflection point for you personally. How so? It was a time now, you know, I, I've had a great career, but it was like, this is sort of my second I mean, 50s kind of still young, but um, what kind of effect can I have on people, and 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 bigger effect, and and um, and how can I do my part on this planet? I had been running, you know, the Schwab Foundation for you know a number of years by then, and certainly it's been so rewarding, and I love it. But then, you know, what's the what's sort of the next thing, and and that's when I ended up getting more involved civically. 
I had done some national stuff, like I mentioned, under actually President Bush and President Obama, but I raised my hand in the city of San Francisco and and said, I, you know, I want to help. And so the mayor appointed me to the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women. And I'm taking my platform and my knowledge and trying to... Uh, to promote financial empowerment in, in San Francisco among women. The, the focus had been on domestic violence and human trafficking, but if you think about it, if women, or anybody for that matter, has some type of, uh, just a small nest egg of financial security, then they can make choices in their in their life. They don't have to work for that company that doesn't share their values, or they don't have to be in that relationship with somebody who doesn't treat them right. They can pretty much do what they want. And um, so so I, I think foundationally for all our lives, it, uh, financial empowerment gives us more choices. What inspires you to give back? Well, there's nothing more meaningful and heartwarming and, and um, powerful than helping someone in need and giving them a leg up and seeing that they take that help and then they just totally bloom as an individual. I just, you know, I think about, when I think about giving up, giving back, I think of Boys and Girls Club, which is the largest youth agency in the United States. And I work very closely with them. And this organization, you know, has the breadth and depth of impact among youth in the United States. And, and, and they are very innovative in how they think about solving problems. And, um, and they're very um, focused on metrics and impact. They don't, they just, they don't think about their, everything's a winning formula. They're always trying to aspire and be better. And that's motivating to me. And I meet these kids, you know, all the time. And I'm thinking just around financial literacy, for instance. They'll work at the Boys and Girls Club and make maybe a couple thousand dollars. And they get so excited. And these are kids that their parents probably didn't even have a bank account. And all of a sudden, they just see this little bit of money, and they start thinking about college. I mean, think that you just go from a little summer job to college, when these young people probably thought they would just get a menial job out of high school and just, you know, live their life. But now opportunities come come to them, and, and that really fuels me. I'm Carrie Schwab Pomerantz, and my secret, actually it was my husband's and my secret, is when we first married, we lived off one paycheck and saved the other one. And of course, I can't leave here without saying, it's all about compound growth and investing. That's what fuels financial security. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ.